Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. He entered the pond in his clothes, and he emerged feeling reborn while tourists on the beach applauded. It's really no kindness giving a standing ovation to a fellow who's having delusions of grandeur, he'd say. This program features the work of 2019 writer Josh Axelrad. In the first half, you'll hear his conversation with curator Kathleen Flanagan, recorded in the Jack Straw Studio. Will you describe your Jack Straw project? So I am in the process of bringing a number of short stories to, I think, publishable state. And most of these pieces originate not in the world of fiction, but in the world of real-life experience and the sort of thing that I might relate in a moth story, something like that. And what I've been learning to do over the past few years is to use those experiences, moments that are often very personal and are rooted in real life and finding something in them that has a different sort of life to it that I think can live better, more clearly, more humorously, more engagingly in the world of prose rather than in the world of performance. And there's a theme to this collection, I believe. You talk a little bit about the theme of, I know you were talking about the way we live our lives online and and not necessarily face-to-face and how that sort of comes into play in some of these stories. That's a theme not just of this collection, but of my life. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that, you know, ruefully or, or I mean, I'm, I'm very conscious of this issue. Uh, like many people in this day and age, perhaps more, I feel that I have gone in sort of zanier directions with like a, an unhealthy relationship to electronics and electronic media than the average person. I hope that's the case. I hope for the sake of humanity that my own experience is not emblematic of what everybody has been out there doing at their their sort of direst moments. But our experiences of relationships, of what it means to communicate with people, have obviously been transformed in a very short period of time. And beyond that, I believe it's our relationships to ourselves and our own minds, our own thoughts. Um... The nature, of course, of like having the internet in your pocket or in front of your face Mm -hmm. at all times is that, maybe not the nature of it, but the nature of the way it's been sort of commodified for us now, the nature of the way it is at this moment. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always have to be this way, but this is how it is now, is that there is always a button you can press to have thoughts other than your own, and you can do it all the time. (laughs) So you, you don't ever at all, if you so choose, maybe except in your dreams, have to just see what it is that your mind has. You can, you can flee always, always. And that's awesome um, or perilous or, or whatever. It's certainly fascinating and it's inescapable and everywhere. And I don't know how to write about the way the people I see in the world are living with, without really centering that, that part of the experience. I try to do it in a way that's that you also want to read so that it is not as perhaps stultifying as the experience. I'm not trying to just recreate what it is that goes on, but to probe it a little bit 
and perhaps find humor in it and occasionally hope. I'm fascinated. Uh, you've talked about the way you use your storytelling at the moth or like places where you're speaking a story to an audience and that that is a way that you sort of refine your material for the page. So I would be so interested to hear you talk a little bit more about how you see the relationship between those stories said out loud and the transmogrification, if that's a word, into a fictional story, that kind of process. I would say that it's in front of, it's in talking to other people, whether it's an audience or just socially, that I become confident that there's any kind of story there at all. And that can happen even at the level of rehearsing, of preparing something for a performance. The audience really doesn't lie to you. If there's something there, they're going to be with you and and they're going to want it and, and they'll they'll attend to it. And if there's not, or if what you're saying is not, doesn't have whatever, the significance to them that it did for you, the significance that you thought that it might have, the, if it doesn't seem true emotionally, if, you know, the things that you're, you you in the story or your people are, are supposedly encountering don't seem like they would really come about that way, you're going to feel it physically, which is can be deeply upsetting when it, when it goes awry, but it's also kind of this incredible, this very powerful editorial tool um, because it's a strange thing. And certainly there are sort of fictional monologues also. I mean, people can do all sorts of things on the stage, but there's a level of sincerity and reality that has to be there. So tell me a little bit about your background and um, how you came to writing. I thought about it for a long time. And um, I mean, what actually happened was so sort of chaotic and and ill-planned. At one point, I had quit a job. I had saved up money so that I could quit. The reason I had the job was to leave the job. Somehow that made sense. Um, there were bills. I had uh, student loans. I had to pay rent to this guy. Anyway, my friend Martin invited me to his aunt's house on the end of Long Island in March, which is not a time people usually go to Montauk from New York City. So we went to Montauk, and we were both going to write. And I was going to start working on a novel, which quickly became a novella. Um <laughs> And at the same time, I had also uh, gotten in touch with some professional gambler types who lived these eccentric lives that I was very interested in and had set about learning some of the skills involved in doing the things that they did. And so we, we went out to Montauk, and I had enough money to live for a few months, and I thought, well, I'll be a writer, a gambler. Something awesome will happen. We'll find out. I don't know what it's going to be. And as it turned out, I didn't know how to write at all, which was scary. And also I got a phone call from uh, some gamblers, and I ended up going and being on the road with some wacky road gamblers for a number of years, which uh, was distracting but fascinating and um, became a, a kind of career in its own right. And that provided some of the fuel for the initial stories that I told at The Moth a long time ago. And in a way, it was a, an unlikely beginning to any kind of writing undertaking at all, which is essentially to not write and go be an active like, lunatic for a time. Um, but it, it led to some stories and... The person who became my agent heard one of them live, and we, we sort of sat down and talked. Um, and then you ended up with a book published by Penguin. I did. I did. He was a good agent. <laughs> yes. I mean, he's still, he's still with us. So 
you had a good deal of success with this nonfiction book, or do you characterize it as nonfiction? I characterize it as nonfiction. Yeah. yeah. And sort of hitting home run on your first at-bat, uh, do you ever feel any pressure from that first success as you sit down to work on your short stories? What I've managed to do without planning it is to uh, organize a writing career in reverse. Um, I mean, that's that's exactly what happened. <laughs> so I was unprepared to write any kind of book at the time that that deal manifested, and I had all sorts of problems related to that, and I did get it out into the world, which is terrific. Um, but what I didn't do is what I've been doing over the past few years, which is spending a huge amount of time really doing things badly for no particular audience and learning. And... Um, you know, maybe improving a little bit, but that's what I'm doing now. And it's what I have to be doing. I'm very, I'm, and I'm delighted to be doing it. So I haven't thought in terms of pressure related to that. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to write fiction and make fiction work, which is pretty different from being a memoirist with wacky gambling stories to tell. There was certainly a path available, leveraging that eccentric life and doing nothing but building on it and saying things related to it and writing journalistic pieces that in some way sort of touched on that particular biography. Um, I'm trying to move beyond that. Or not beyond it, not that there's, I mean, a higher, I'm aiming for something higher, but just I'm, I'm trying not to have to use that particular thing as, as a crutch. I'm trying to write the best stories that I can that, that live on their own separately from me, which is part of what fiction does that's different from getting up in front of a, a microphone with people. It's disembodied and it has to stand for itself. Now we'll hear a selection from Josh's live reading. A warning for our listeners. This reading contains references to sexual abuse. This is a short story entitled Comedy. The joke was that John's mom had serially molested him, but it was funny. But why was it funny? It might have been the thought of finding funniness in such a thing, or it might have been the premise it had happened at all. I'm not defending it as comedy. John and I, though, we laughed, howled, tears in our eyes, etc., this was in the college years. Each would go home to his family on breaks like any untraumatized person. My point is that I never worried. We had turkey. She made me touch her vagina. We had pumpkin pie. He exhaled bone-colored smoke past the bowl. Behind him on his room's wall, a movie poster tacked above the mattress showed the image of a monkey in a baseball cap. Monkey Trouble, 1994. One Friday, he phoned. Senior year. The group we were in had an improv show in a few hours. I said, I'll see you at Hartley. My dude, we have a medical emergency. He'd been coughing up blood, he explained. I said, oh. So I called health services. The nurse wants to know how much blood. I tell her straight out that I have no intuitive handle on units of liquid measurement. Of course. Like number of teaspoons, whatever. She wants to know, what is a, was it a thimbleful? More. From thimbleful, she goes to shot glass. From shot glass, Al, she went straight to carafe. We ended up deciding I coughed up about a half carafe of blood. Rather than head to the hospital, he was bound for Penn Station. 
from there to catch a night train for Boston and home. That this made no medical sense was something I grasped at the time, but I was so accustomed to hearing impossibilities out of John's mouth that I asked no questions. That was in February. In June, we were to graduate, but John wasn't back. Instead, he lived at home, got psychiatric care of some variety, abandoned his shrink for the army. After 18 months as a grunt, he abandoned the army, went AWOL, traveled from Fort Lewis right here in Washington State all, all the way to Texas and what he later claimed was 25 bucks. And from Texas, he got home to Boston. A lawyer friend of his parents negotiated an other than honorable discharge that would obviate the risk of prosecution. After two years absence, he returned to New York, finished college, hung out with Gordo and me and got a girlfriend and got a job. He took the girlfriend to Walden Pond where he experienced bizarre thoughts. He entered the pond in his clothes, and he emerged feeling reborn while tourists on the beach applauded. It's really no kindness giving a standing ovation to a fellow who's having delusions of grandeur, he'd say. She brought him home to Boston, to his parents' house. He stayed this time for four years. In the middle of that period, I got high with Gordo one day. It was John's birthday. We decided to head to the Port Authority and hop a bus to Boston to surprise him. We were climbing the odorous stairs into the havoc of the terminal when Gordo said, Oh, golly, man, he'd forgotten he had a performance that night. Go on to Boston, he insisted. I was too high to argue. Three hours after getting off the bus at South Station, I was standing on John's doorstep on a quiet street. In the interval between the knock and the appearance of his figure through the door's leaded glass, I had flashes of collegiate emotion. The mealy-mouthed anxiety I used to feel, the stuttering in front of John. Wassermania, he said. Happy birthday, my dude. A welcome surprise. You leave me no choice but to say that, though it is true. Then we were caught in a low-ceilinged house that had flooring a century old, creaks coming from all directions as if a sinkhole underneath us were expanding. In a room upstairs were the parents, warmly, but with her eyes taking little saccades to check the documentary across the room, his mother thanked me for surprising John. His dad said, I take it you're staying for the night. I found them kindly and forgettable. In the morning, loafing in the kitchen, I saw a yellowed sheet of newsprint in a frame. His graduation speech from high school had been reprinted in the school paper. Refuted in the speech's connotation were the value of speeches and language, the benefits of education, the debt owed members of the audience, the hope of the departing graduates, hope generally, life generally. This was all phrased using language so close to the language it was parodying, inverting, that it was possible to take it for its opposite. To see this displayed was amazing to me. So scandalous and thorough was the irony. The folks put that there the very day it went to press. Been in that spot ever since, John said. Do they know? I mean, do they get this? He looked doubtful for a moment, then widened his eyes and opened his mouth in a sudden delirious laugh. Alan, he said grandly, they have no idea. Briefly, I worried, but would forget it later. Who was there around to understand him? When I think of my own mom, I experience molestation jokes first and only later see the image of her person, all of which is owing to his influence. That she worked as a child psychologist with a specialty in victims of abuse enriches the humor in ways he'd enjoy. He was losing his mind for the third time when I met Paige. Because of her, I headed to Seattle. While John was dropping out of J school, returning to Boston again, an ultrasound confirmed that she was pregnant. There was birth, followed by the challenges. 
My mom kept calling. It was like getting stalked. The phone rang and was silenced. Rang, silenced. Answering would have been worse due to her unvoiced plea for an emotional response. Fuming one day, I played voicemail, calling her back to explain as cordially as I could manage that I wished not to have the itinerary of my existence determined by the marketing team at JetBlue. But it's a one-day sale, my mom said. They double the prices. They roll back the doubled prices and they cry sale. Is the old one too, mom? I said. I miss her, she asserted in a tiny voice. I had to tell her I'd consult Paige. Paige rolled her eyes and said, Tuesday through Monday, is she serious? She's a grandma. I said, she can't help it. I'd just been attacking mom, but now I had shifted to defense against Paige. As John remarked to me on one occasion, when the enemy is one's mother, the enemy is womanhood itself. We agreed on a Thursday arrival, mom grumbling at the higher fare. I apologized, pinning all blame on my wife. A few days later, the latter learned about a conference in Hawaii, coinciding with the pending visit, and determined that she must go. When mom realized Paige would be away for her entire trip, she concluded it had really been I, all along, who'd been insisting on the shorter stay and felt hurt, betrayed, and deceived. She expressed this obliquely tacitly asking for comfort again, which enraged me again. The old song. The week she was due to arrive, Gordo called. It went to voicemail. I was driving and I wanted to enjoy driving. When I dialed him back, he said, so, he said, John died. The service was in 30 hours, which seemed impossible, in Boston. I asked if we knew if it was suicide. We didn't, but it had happened in a hospital. He'd been committed to a mental ward the night before, and he was dead before the morning rounds. Whose story is that? That's his parents? I guess. I got a next-day fare, surprisingly low. Tuesday, I'd fly out to Boston. Wednesday, attend the funeral. Thursday, return to Seattle. At virtually the same moment, Paige was departing for Maui, with Mom landing two hours later. No sweat. From Logan, I made for the suburbs. Spent the night with Gordo in a Super 8. The room overlooked a busy, squalid street with an all-night tow truck operation headquartered on the other side. Gordo, physically John's opposite, tall and almost skeletally slender, occupied the desk chair, speaking in cadences stolen from John back in college, just the way I do. Twenty years gone into our friendship and we were mourning John together using John's voice, laughing wherever we could at the things he had done or had told us. In the synagogue, we donned loner yarmulkes and sat down. There's the brother, Gordo whispered. Oh, man. The brother looked hauntingly like John. Gordo had reminded me in the Super 8 that the brother had supposedly had stories exactly echoing John's about boyhood molestation on their mother's part. He'd had symptoms of bipolar also, like John. These were all facts I had known but had lost through the years as if his irony had neutralized his history. He refuses to talk to their mother, Gordo said, nodding across the big white hall. The brother had turned down the third row and was working his way through seats. John's parents sat two rows ahead in the front, his father in, the blue, in a blue suit with yarmulke matching. The mother bent forward, her face in her hands. The rabbi at the lectern in a black mumuish ensemble was beginning to recount what must have been a parentally sanctioned version of John's life. When she mentioned that he'd been a writer, Gordo glanced over at me with his brow raised 
And in the car afterward, as we zipped along with the cortege and its unexpected police escort, he said he'd been surprised, especially when she mentioned the memoir that John continued working on until his death. And when I said, why? Gordo said, first of all, because he hadn't had success as a writer, and she acknowledged it, which I thought was fairly candid in the context of a eulogy, you know? And second, because so much of what John wrote had to do with his parents, his mom. He asked whether I could guess his, Gordo's, favorite of all the various working titles John had dreamed up for this book. I said, no, I'm thinking of an early 90s action comedy with Sylvester Stallone and Estelle Getty. This was Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. I remembered John's title. Stop or My Mom Will Fillet Me, I said. He turned his palm to the sky meaning yes, we raced along silently. The procession had entered a highway, and in the rearview mirror I saw a bustle of flashing police lights, and behind the bustle, hordes of vehicles, hundreds, stopped, waiting, and we zoomed ahead through a trafficless altered reality, a suburban Boston of the mind, motorcycle cops flitting past us at emphatic speed amid the ivory-colored daylight of the April morning. What were we supposed to make of a title like that? Gordo said it had to be a joke. Don't you think it had to be a joke? I think fillet sounds hyperbolic. Cars parked along the cemetery's laneless, sinuate road presented an obtrusive contrast to the hill's greenery. Without hurry, with a specific purposiveness requiring idleness for its expression, people in fine clothes and wearing sunglasses some of the women in dark hats, some of the men with their yarmulkes still on their heads, ambled toward a tent before the waiting pit. I carried mom's two heavy bags up the stairs. We went in the apartment for a time. She asked if there was white wine. It's 3 p.m. I'm retired. <laughs> when her glass had been emptied, we returned to the car, sped up the hill to the daycare where we got Flora. The kid leaped. Her arms were locked around her grandma's neck. Later, the girl was in bed, and mom had positioned herself across from me in the living room with her iPad and fifth or sixth glass of white wine. I had a beer at my side, and the laptop was weighing on my lap. The thrum of the white noise machine in Flora's room emerged with spooky softness from the monitor. Imagining mom as my own shrink and the two of us sitting through a zany therapeutic session involving alcoholic beverages and social media, I started to ask about John and John's brother and John's brother's story and whether delusional siblings might make up accounts of abuse. She was watching me concertedly, which never happens. What's that? She said. Tears were coursing. It was uncontrollable. I felt deranged. In the lower section of her lenses, the reflection of the tablet went dark. So we sat, mom saying simply how sorry she was. I was nodding and without anger and without questions. Finding my way to the John Finkelstein Memorial Group on Facebook, I scrolled and I liked and I scrolled and I marveled and liked, discovering in the end a post containing an image of the school paper in which the transcript of his graduation speech had been printed. I reread the speech, ten years having passed since the first read. We embarked to find that which we have always had, but never known. Confusedly, I read it twice, three times, affected by the eloquence, 
by the sincerity, the absence of the irony I had known him by. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production produced by Alyssa Keene and Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, Tom Stiles, and Ayesha Ubiatilaka. Our theme music is by the Bird Tribe Orchestra, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The 2019 curator of this program is Kathleen Flanagan, and the narrator for this podcast is Alyssa Keene. The Jack Straw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back-fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks go to Larry Lawrence for transcribing our writers' interviews. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jack Straw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>